So last week we heard about generational um, handoffs. We just All Saints Sunday. It was time to hear about uh, those who have gone before us and how what we have as Christians is really given to us by generations before us, the great cloud of witnesses, that what we believe in the gospel is nothing new, uh, but it is our turn. And every day is our turn to be the church, just as the generations before us have done. And today, what, well, what happens is with generational handoffs, every single one, is that once it gets handed off to you, uh, you, went, you maybe you went with mamma to church when you were a child and what have you, and, and it, you grew up into it, and here's what happens. It either becomes yours, it crystallizes, it becomes personal, it's, it's your faith, it's not grandma's faith, it's yours now, or what happens is you do the postmodern thing is where you say, well, that was their truth, that was their understanding, but now I have mine, and therefore... Uh, and that's okay, because that's a good place to start. It's a good place to start. But it's not a great place to, to end in the life of faith, to really be living a life of faith based on maybe how you understood Jesus as a child, or you've watched Jesus from a distance, or you've engaged with Christianity uh, it, from, through proxy, through other people, through other generations. And you essentially remember the version of Jesus you left off with, if that's you. You remember sort of middle school Jesus. Maybe you went to youth camp, and we had soda, and we played crazy games, and, and someone threw Cheetos at somebody or, or whatever, and that was your understanding of Jesus. Or maybe it was youth camp Jesus, and we sang songs around a fire, and uh, we had a good time. Or it was, I'm enduring church in a pew Jesus, and I can't wait to get out of here uh, you know, we all have those things that we left, maybe you left off that version of Jesus when you were a kid, and, and maybe now you're becoming an adult. A lot of adults do that. When you start to have children, you want to get back into church and things like that, and that's great, but that's, a, that's what we almost would call a second generation faith. I've got three chairs up here, first, second, and third, and that many people, I believe, we're all in one of these three chairs. We are in the first generation faith where we, have, we own it. We, we know God. We know Jesus. We want to follow him with all of our lives. You have the second generation ch- seat, which is, I know of God. It was my grandma. It was, it was important to her, so I would go. So you know the things of God, but you don't really know Christ. And then there's the third generation chair, which is like, I, you, you don't even know what you don't know. You, you don't even know the things of God, or even having a me- even have a memory of the things of God. Not a judgment, but all people are in one of those three places. So it begs a big, bigger question of how do people in general move from a chair to a chair? What moves you from a, a three to a two? What, what, what causes your faith to become personal that you would move from two to one? What, what is it that happens in a metaphysical way that you can't see that makes it become a first generation faith? Not an inherited faith. Well, we're going to take a little journey through the Bible, as you would expect in church, uh, and we're going to be going through the book of Joshua, we're going to go to Judges, and then we're going to go to Genesis. So if you brought your Bible, you can open up to uh, Joshua 24, it'll also be on the screen, and we're going to start our journey there about this generational handoff, the importance of having a first generation faith, and um, Joshua chapter 24, we know that Joshua was a successor of Moses, that he was going to follow, he was one that led the people into the land of promise. Moses didn't get there. He got to the mountaintop, he saw it, then he dies, and God essentially buries him, which is kind of a beautiful language in Deuteronomy 34. But then Joshua's the one that leads the people. 
We know the song, Joshua fought the battle of. All right. I think they sang that last week upstairs with the children. So Joshua goes into the land of promise. Um, land was part of the inheritance back then. That was part of the inheritance of faith, was in getting land. Not so much today, but it was back then. And so each tribe of Israel was going to go into the land. They're going to get their apportioned land. That was part of their inheritance. Well, then in Joshua 24, Joshua calls all the tribes together for basically a big family reunion, a big convocation. And they gather in a land, a place called Shechem, and Shechem uh, was centrally located so they could get to it easily from where they're all spread out. And so he gathers them all together and they have this big meeting with all of the tribes. And throughout this chapter, he, he goes through the, an oral tradition as they would do through the nation of Israel and all that God has brought them through through the Exodus and all those things. And then he says these words in verse 14. Now therefore revere the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your ancestors served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. Now, if you are unwilling to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served in the region beyond, false gods, the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. So we all, we know this. As for me and my household, we will. You know because of Hobby Lobby, right? It's, it's everywhere. Seen on T-shirts, seen on coffee mugs, you've seen it, you know, wherever. Uh, we have these cute little sayings in the Christian church. I, I heard one yesterday that I'm going to use a lot. It's, um, God loves you and I'm trying. <laughs> I'm never going to forget that one. Um, but this question of, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. This is really a legacy question, isn't it? it it's Joshua saying to the people, okay, what are you going to do? Because I have a feeling some of y'all are in chair two. And I hope some of y'all are in chair three. Me and my house, we're in chair one. This is what we're going to do. We're going to serve the Lord. This is our purpose. We're gonna, they're going to own our faith today. We're not going to follow the false gods that we just left. This is what we're going to do. So what are you going to do? Choose this day. You could call it like a Shechem moment. So he goes on Joshua 24 and he he says, are you going to do this? And the people say, yes, we're going to do it. And Joshua says, no, you're not. You're not going to do it. And he says, are you going to do this? And they say, yes. And he says, no, you're not. You're not going to do it. Then a third time, they finally affirm their commitment where it says, Joshua said to the people, your witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and make we, him we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made statutes and ordinances for them at Shechem. This is an important place. Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and they took a large stone, a stone of remembrance, what you call an Ebenezer in Hebrew, and set it up there under the oak in the sanctuary of the Lord. Joshua said to all the people, see this stone shall be a witness against us for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you if you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away to their inheritances. So this is the Shechem moment. Are you moving from chair two to chair one, nation of Israel? What are you going to do today, now? Not what did your granddad do, but what are you going to do? And then it goes on in Judges chapter two. The story picks up in Judges chapter two. You had no idea the Old Testament was so entertaining, did you? Uh, it, It picks up. The family reunion ends in Judges chapter two, verse six. 
and uh, the, the people are sent away to their apportioned land. And this is what Judges then says in verse 7. The people worshiped the Lord all the days of Joshua. So Joshua lived a long time. And all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. So we have a generation after Joshua, the people would serve the Lord and be faithful to him. Who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel in the Exodus. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. So the people were faithful to Joshua's generation and the generation after Joshua. But then something happens in verse 10. That's very telling, and it's where we are now in the church uh, in the United States, which is this. There arose another generation who did not know the Lord or the things of the Lord. They had no memory of God. Verse 10, moreover, the whole generation was gathered to their ancestors. This is my emphasis. And another generation grew up after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So here's what's happening. The kids are now adults. The kids have grown up, and they've moved on. They don't know God or the things of God. They don't even have a memory of God. So they are now officially in chair two. They are residing in that place, and they're getting awfully close to chair three. Generation three is followed, and they are definitely there. What's happened here is this legacy of faith, this generational handoff, has essentially failed and the people don't remember the Lord. So why do I keep talking about this? Well, there's lots of reasons. For one, if you're here and you're a believer, many of you are, you want to leave a legacy of faith for your family, right? For your children. You know, we want to leave more, legacies more than stuff. You know, or I don't know if our kids want our stuff. <laughs> my kids probably won't want my stuff. You have to deal with your stuff after their parents are gone. That's good, but but they need something more valuable, right, than, than just what can be perishable on earth. We want to leave something that lasts forever. This, this, this uh, inheritance of the faith in God is, is critical, but it's hard because you can't make your kids believe anything, right? <laughs> Duh. I mean, remember that David's son, um, the Rehoboam? The Bible says he's one of the worst people who ever lived. That's, that's David. If David can't get it right, what hope do I have? But here's, here's the answer, though. Yeah, you can't make your kids believe anything, but you can be an, you can't influence. Let them hear you pray. Let your children see you weep. Let your kids hear you read, see you read the Bible. I've, I've said this stat before, but uh, over all the kids that grow up in a youth group situation in a church, which is millions of kids across the United States, I think like 60% of them, when they get into college, leave their faith behind. And that was my, well, more or less. That was my story too for many years. But of those numbers that return to their faith of their youth, 80% of them that return, there's one, there's one um, thing that would make that happen. And it was if mom and or dad continued on in their uh, journey with God. You continue to go to church, continue to be faithful. 80% of the time, the kids return to the faith that they grew up with on that one principle. Isn't that incredible? So that's why I'm talking about this is because these generational handoffs are key, and you can't control it, but consistency and authenticity is powerful stuff. You know, most people today will hear about the gospel and Jesus and love and eternal life, and they'll think, well, I don't know if I believe that or not, but they'll look at people like me and you and go, well, if it's real to you, 
I might believe it, right? If you believe it, then I'll listen. Authenticity goes a long way with people, and it should, because you can't undermine someone's testimony. It's the most powerful weapon, maybe one of the most powerful weapons we have um, to spread the gospel. So we're going to go back to Genesis, and we're going to look this generational handoff as well with Abraham. We know Abraham's definitely in chair one, right? Isaac and Jacob. Now, if you look at Abraham, he's the father of what, what the Muslims would even call him, the father of their faith. Um, Abraham had two sons, Isaac and, and Ismael, Ishmael, and uh, is, through Ishmael, Muslims believe that's who Muhammad would come through, and of course, uh, through Isaac would come the Jewish nation. So we know Abraham's a big deal. Abraham's definitely in chair one, but even he had a difficult time crafting a legacy of faith for his son Isaac. Because they were nomadic, his people, the first thing Abraham would do when he arrived at a new location was Abraham would build an altar and he would offer a sacrifice to the Lord. And then he would dig a well. You see it over and over again. Altar, well. I'll take care of, I'm gonna focus on God first and honor him first. And then we're gonna take care of the animals and the people. We're gonna dig a well. And they would move, they'd follow the water because they had thousands of animals and that's what they would do. They were nomads. A lot of people, hundreds of times, not hundreds, dozens of times, move, alter, well, over and over. Isaac, we see in the book of Genesis, uh, initially would never build an altar. That interesting? He would move his people and then he would, he'd dig a well, but he wouldn't honor the Lord. And then in Genesis um, 20, what chapter am I on? Genesis 26 and verse 24, God gets a hold of Isaac when Isaac's about 60 years old. And this is what it says. The very night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you. I will make your offspring numerous for my servant Abraham's sake. So what does Isaac then do? He builds an altar. He'd never done that before. When he prays earlier in Genesis, Isaac prays, O God of my father Abraham. He doesn't say, my God. He has an inherited faith. He doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't know God. And then God in his grace gets a hold of Isaac and appears to him, literally. And he, then in that moment, Isaac moves from the second chair to the first chair and from an inherited faith to a first generation faith. And then he immediately goes to that place of worship. That's why when you're not a believer, worship doesn't really make a lot of sense, does it? You know, you can see it on people's faces. <laughs> I've been in churches for many, many years now, and you'll see people that are in worship services that don't really know what's going on, and they'll just kind of stand there, you know, and just kind of watch. And, and I get that. You know, we're all in different places on, that, on these chairs, and that's okay. But that's why, because, well, if you don't really know who Jesus is and the, the beauty of who he is, then worship doesn't really make a lot of sense. So here's what happens with Isaac. Isaac was in chair two. He goes to chair one. Very quick summary. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Now, Jacob is firmly in chair three. <laughs> Jacob's name meant deceiver. Jacob never built an altar. Jacob would steal water from other people and steal their animals. <laughs> so Jacob was way, way off from where he needed to be. Here's what happens in Genesis 35. God gets a hold of Jacob and appears to him in a dream and says this to him. 
God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall you be called Jacob. This is such a Jesus thing to say, isn't it? He changes his name. You're not, I'm not going to call you Jacob anymore. But Israel shall be your name. So he was called Israel. God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. He's saying the same thing he said to Abraham and Isaac. A nation and a country of nations shall come from you, and kings shall spring from you. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. How, how good is God? How faithful is God? That Jacob was a wicked man, firmly on chair three. And God in his mercy appeared to him and said, I don't want you to be there. I want you to be here, Jacob. I want you to move over the seat, to shuffle over a little bit, Jacob. So what does Jacob do in verse 14? Jacob set up an altar in the place where he'd spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he pours an offering on it and poured oil on it. And Jacob called the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. So he builds an altar, and then he digs a well. A lot of Christians today, we're all about digging those wells first, aren't we? We're not honoring the Lord before we take care of our own business. You can do that, but a lot of the life of faith and discipleship is simply reorganizing your priorities. It is simply reorganizing your loves in the right order. And it's God and then everything else. And when you do that, you're not... You're not giving less to the people you care about. You're actually giving them more. So here's the the crazy part. When Jacob moves from chair three to chair one and he digs a well, where does he dig the well? Shechem. This is the first, this is the place where in Joshua the people would gather and have their Shechem moment, and Joshua would say to them, What are you going to do? Are you going to go in chair one, nation of Israel, or are you not? The very place. Now, Jacob's well still exists in the West Bank. It's still there, which is amazing. You fast forward hundreds of years from the story of Joshua to the story of Jesus. And Jesus goes to that same well in the heat of the noon of the day for a drink. He goes out of his way, actually, to go into what was then Samaria because he's seeking after a certain woman. A Samaritan was a half Gentile and a half Jew. They're a half breed. They're cast out. They're unclean. You don't get, he went out of his way to go see this woman at this well, Jacob's well. And it's, the Bible tells us that Jesus went to this well and it's in a place called Sychar. Another, that's a Greek word. Another word for Sychar is Shechem. And it's from this place that Jesus would announce his identity and his ministry to the world. It's through this one woman, this unseen outcast woman that he would announce to the whole world what are you going to do god loves you are you going to be in chair two your whole life are you going to be in chair three your whole life it's from this place that jesus would announce the greatest work of redemption of god ever and to call not just israel to repentance but everybody and he does it at jacob's well we're all in one of these three chairs. People in the second chair, we, we grew up, okay, y'all, in the, in the 1960s, I think it was like 80% of American population went to church, right? I talked to somebody 
uh, a few weeks ago who said when they, when they pulled out of their driveway around here to go to church on Sunday morning, everybody was leaving at the same time. <laughs> you would see, it's like the Truman Show or something. Like you would see all these cars. It's not that way anymore. It's just, just not. Most people in our culture today, not a judgment, on a scale of zero to 10, 10 being very Christ-like or something like that, zero just not knowing anything, most people are at zero. Most people aren't even in chair three. They're like in chair 79, okay? And that's okay. I was in chair 80, all right? But the question is, how do we get people to move from zero to a one? Because we're talking about stuff sometimes to the culture that they just don't even care about. I didn't care about it before I knew Christ, right? How do we get people to move from chair three to chair one, chair two to chair one? See, it's the same answer, it's the same message today God has for his people, which is, what will you do today? As for me and my house, Joshua said, I'm going to serve the Lord. And I know many of you in this room would affirm that. There's also people in this room that I know are here. I know you are, and that's okay. But God doesn't want you to stay there. If you, maybe you're here, and you, you don't know anything about anything, and that's okay too. God loves you just where you are. But he doesn't want you to stay in these places. Because, because you're, you're, you're missing out on intimacy with God. You're missing out on knowing peace of God. And that's where free will comes in. The key question when it comes to leaving a personal legacy of faith is you can't leave a legacy of faith if there's nothing to leave, right? If you only have an inherited understanding of who Christ is, then how are you going to leave that to your children? Eventually, when they have kids, it might fade away. John Wesley had the same revelation when he was a young man. He realized he was an Anglican priest, and then, you know, he was ordained. But he realized he was acting on inherited faith in his head, but God hadn't changed his heart. And until God did that, he wasn't going to fully understand what all this was about. What's tipped the scales for people thousands of years throughout history to move from these places to this place? It always started with the leadership. It started with, I can't control what you're going to do, but I know what I'm going to do. Right? You all have people in your lives that, man, I wish they would get saved. I wish they would come to know the Lord. Man, it's sort of like that Christian gossip, like, hey, we need to pray for so-and-so, and and let me tell you why. You're right, and then you kind of slide into a prayer request, right? You know? But what tipped the scales is when you decided today, I am going to own my relationship with God. It's the most serious question there is. There's nothing bigger. There's no bigger question to answer. I said this before. The biggest question is in life is what am I going to do with the person of Jesus Christ? And the second question is, if you do marry, who will you marry? That is the second biggest question. But what you do with the message of the gospel, God wants all people to be in that first generation of believers. He really does but he gives us choice. He gives us free will. I was thinking about the miracle of this week of turning water into wine in the New Testament. And it's Jesus' first miracle. Uh, it happened pretty soon after he announced, he spoke to the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. And it's at the wedding of Cana. And they run out of wine. So Mary, knowing that her son is pretty special, comes to him and says, Jesus, will you do something about this? 
And he says, woman, what, what, what do you want me to do? And he said, okay, tell your servants to go fill up jugs of water. Now, when I say jugs of water, it was hundreds of gallons of water. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of effort to prepare the water in these similar sort of jars. And then bring them here. And then we, through the miracle and the wonder of who Jesus is, he turns it into wine. Not just crappy wine, but the, but the good stuff. The good stuff. Because that's who God is. God brings the good stuff, y'all. God doesn't cheat. And you can't outgive God. You can't. That's the definition of blessing when you go above the expectations, right? Whatever expectations we have of God is here. If your expectation's up here, he's here. He's always going to be better than you can imagine. Whatever your idea of God is, it's bigger. Whatever your understanding of God's love is, it's bigger. And so they were probably like, okay, this crazy guy is asking us to bring him water. Okay, whatever. But they did it in faith, and they brought water to him. Here's what I'm telling you that. Many people today in our world... They want Jesus. They want his miracles. They want to know peace in their lives. They want to have peace with God. They want to believe. I want to believe as my grandfather did. I want to know God in that way, but I don't. We want Jesus to do the miracle. But sometimes he asks us to fill the jar in expectation, to participate in our own transformation before he will. And sometimes filling the jar is just as simple as praying a prayer of faith, leaning forward to God in expectancy, trusting that he's going to do what he said he's going to do. Everyone needs this sort of Shechem moment where you know know you're here. And God says, I want you to go here, but you have to to come forward in faith for, for me to catch you. And he will. Like Isaac and Jacob built an altar. God wants us to build that altar in our heart and to know and to be draw near to him. And when we do that, God will meet you there. He will meet you there. As we go into this time of prayer, let's close our eyes and bow our heads. I encourage you to ask yourself, like, the love of God is here and now in this place. And if you are in that second chair, then you know you're in the second chair. Say to God, God, I want to trust you to move into the first chair. I know I've been messing up. I know I'm not where I need to be. And my friend, the presence of the Holy Spirit will will help you. He's always been there. He's never left your side. He never left Isaac's side. He never left Jacob's side. He never left the side of the Samaritan woman. He never did. Jesus said, I've not come to condemn the world, but to save it. He has not come to condemn you. He's come to redeem you. And when you bow down and admit your dependence on him, he will lift you up and give you honor. He will pick you up and put you in that first chair. And then you have something to leave to your children. You have a legacy of faith to give away, to bless. And when you pray over your children, it's going to be from your heart or your grandchildren. 
So God, in this moment, may you make a miracle in us. It's a miracle really, we're even here today, God. It's a miracle we're alive. It's a miracle we have breath to breathe. Come, Holy Spirit. Make new wine out of us, God.